Well, as we start this series on First Peter, I want to remind you um, what I've said before, and this won't be the last time you'll hear it either, that um, it helps me to think of the Bible in three ways, in, in 3D, 3Ds. Um, the Bible recounts the drama of the story of Jesus that, that helps us to love the story of Jesus. But the Bible is, is not just that narrative of the story of Jesus. Within the Bible, there's also uh, recorded doctrines, teachings, that help us to learn the story of Jesus so that we understand what this giant story is about, what it means for us. Uh, but then not only is, are there doctrines recorded in the Bible, there are also directions recorded in the Bible, and those directions help us to understand how to live in the story of Jesus. And uh, you've heard me say that I think we can summarize all of those directions in three. Repent, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus. Um, so, how does First Peter fit into that? First uh, Peter and all of the letters um, of the New Testament which you've heard them called epistles. Epistles are not the wives of the apostles, by the way. Just checking. Um, epistles are letters written uh, by the apostles, uh, taking all that Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God, and they are teaching us both doctrine about explaining the story of Jesus in these letters, but they're also giving us directions in their letters to tell us how to live in the story of Jesus. So, all these letters in the New Testament are doctrine and directions. They're helping us to learn the story of Jesus and to know how to live in the story of Jesus. And so when the Shorter Catechism asks, as we read a little while ago, what does the Bible primarily teach? It says the Bible primarily teaches what we must believe about God. Well, that's the drama, the story. We must believe that story about God is true. And it's also the doctrines, what, what the Bible teaches about the story and about God and about us and about sin and about salvation. So those are the things that we must believe about God. But then the Catechism says that it also, the Bible also teaches what God requires of us. Well, those are the directions that are in the Bible on how to live in the story of Jesus, how to live in the story uh, with the God who has made himself known in the drama and the doctrine. So, First Peter comes in and helps us now to take that big story, that drama that we spent most of last fall walking through together, and now Peter says, this is what the story means, and this is how you live in it. And that's what all those letters are. So, I wanted to kind of help us kind of locate where we are uh, in the Bible and how it fits with the other pieces before we begin. So let me pray. Be gracious to us, O Lord, and listen, as the psalmist said, listen to our plea for grace. As we listen to you, declare your grace to us. And as we see it demonstrated in the bread and the cup in a little while, would you help us to see and hear your grace for us. And would you make our souls glad so that we might serve you with joy. 
in the week to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so having been a resident here for a year, um, I'm learning about the fog. So this morning, as I left my house at, I don't know what it was, 6.30, as I drove through our neighborhood, um, the only way when the fog is as thick as it was this morning, the only way that I can get myself through the neighborhood and through town is to locate with my eyes those little reflector buttons that they put on the lines, you know? Now, I don't know about your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, they're few and far between, and they don't seem to reflect as well. Maybe they're like me, and they're getting dim in their old age, but um, this morning, apparently, I lost sight of them, and I almost ended up in somebody's yard. Seriously, I, I was like, this doesn't feel right, and I looked, and there's, I'm almost in somebody's yard. But I adjusted, I found the little reflector things, and I I made my way to the office. Um, As I thought about that this morning, I thought, oh, that's perfect, that's perfect. Because what I need, I need in the fog of my life, in the fog of my suffering, in the fog of my sin, in the fog of how hard it is to live uh, life in general, much less live life as a, a follower of Jesus, Uh, In the fog of all that's going on in my life, I need glimpses of God's grace to keep me moving in the right direction. And when I lose sight of Jesus, I end up in a ditch or somebody's yard. And this is what 1 Peter is all about. This is why I'm excited about 1 Peter, because this is what he wants to do for us. He wants to lay out these little reflectors for us in the fog of our real lives. Um, look at 1 Peter 5.12. Sometimes in order to understand what the letter is about, you, well, not sometimes, but you have to say, see, what does the author of the letter say the letter is about? And in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says this. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, We don't know if Silvanus actually wrote as Peter dictated to him. Uh, That's possible. But certainly Silvanus was probably the one who delivered this letter to those churches in um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which are all now located in modern Turkey, uh, what we know as Turkey. And so he probably, and those. Names are probably in that order because that's likely the route he took when he delivered this letter from Peter to the house churches that were meeting in those places. So Silvanus uh, has, however, one way or the other, helped Peter write briefly to you. You can tell Peter must be a preacher because he thinks five chapters is brief. Um, But he says, I've I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This, what does he mean? He means the whole letter. He means that I've been declaring and exhorting you with the grace of God in all five of these chapters. Of course, he didn't know there were chapters. He didn't have chapters back then. But this is the true grace of God. And that word true 
means genuine, real. This is the real grace of God I've been giving you. Stand firm in it. So we don't have to guess why he's written the letter. He, he's told us plainly. Maybe this is another way to say what he's saying. Through this letter, which I'm delivering to you through Sylvanus, I've come alongside you to urge you, to exhort you, and I've declared and testified. That's what that declared word has that idea of testified built into it. I've testified to you as a reliable witness that the grace about which I have written is real. It's true. This is real grace, the message of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus that you've heard from me, which is the same message you've heard from all the apostles. Jesus himself is the true, genuine, bona fide grace of God. Now, plant your feet in his grace. Stand firm in it. Don't be moved from this grace. In the fog of your real life, keep your eyes on the real life of Jesus, the real grace of Jesus. So that's what this book is all about. And, you know, this morning, all I'm going to do, in fact, the outline in your bulletin, uh, I was a bit ambitious and I thought I was going to do more than I am, and you'll be thankful that I'm not. We're really only going to get through the first point this morning uh, because I need to give you some background here. When we talk about, we're going to talk about grace a lot. What? I need to have real grace for my real life. So what is grace? A very basic definition of grace is this. Grace is the free gift of God's undeserved and unearned favor. Favor. What, is fav- what, is, what does it mean to be in God's favor or in anyone's favor? Uh, favor is... God turning his face towards you in love. God turning his face towards you in kindness, in blessing, in full acceptance, in full approval. It's it's what we read in number six this morning, the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of his face upon you and give you peace. When the king let his face shine on you, that was a good thing. So grace is the free gift of God turning his face to you in love. Someone once said that grace is the face that love wears when it meets the undeserving. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets those who don't deserve it. And the root word for grace refers to a free gift. A free gift. Now, uh, Tim Keller is very helpful to me uh, for trying to understand uh, grace. He said there's all kinds of gifts that are absolutely free that you haven't paid for, but not all these gifts change your life. For example, he says, if you go to an event sponsored by an organization and they give you a little gift bag, you know, if you've ever been to one of these conferences, and they give you a little gift bag, and he says, in it, there's a writing tablet with the logo of the organization on it. Oh, thank you. I've been longing for one of these. Thank you for this gift. Um, He says, is it free? Yeah. 
is it a gift? Sure. Has it changed your life? Probably not. Will it change your life, even if you use it? Most likely not. And the reason why, he says, that a gift like that, though it's free, um, doesn't change your life is because it's not indispensable, it's not necessary, and it's not costly. It, it's cheap. You, didn't have, you could have bought one yourself. You could have provided it yourself. So the reason a gift like that doesn't change your life is because it's not indispensable and absolutely necessary for your life to continue. And <clears throat> it's something you can, pro- you can provide for yourself. So, eh, it either goes in the trash or on a shelf or you give it to the kids to draw pictures during church. But, he says, what if a poor person, what if you were a poor person living in another country where you needed an operation that your life depended on it? You can't afford it. There's no way. You don't have access to anyone who can do the surgery, and if you did, you don't have the money to pay for it. But this surgery, if you're going to live, you need this operation. And what if you knew someone who is not as poor as you, but who liquidated almost all their assets so that they would give you the money and connect you with the person who could give you the surgery to save your life. It's a free gift, just like the writing tablet, but it's very different. It's very different, and it will change your life because you need that gift to live. And it's also different because it's so costly It's not something you can provide for yourself. Someone else is going to have to pay for it for you. The gift of God's grace is like that. It's indispensable. It's necessary. And it's also very costly. And and Peter helps us understand that in this letter. Um, So I want us to really get... Uh, in our minds, in our hearts, this understanding of what grace is so that when we use the word a lot, it doesn't just fall on numb ears. So, so think about this with me. The gift of God's grace, his favor, his face turning, turning towards you in love and kindness, it is indispensable. You need it. Until you understand how indispensable God's favor is to your eternal existence, you won't be changed by the gift of his favor to you. Until you have, as uh, Larry Crabb says, until you've looked bad in the presence of God's love, you won't change. And so First Peter, in Peter, uh, in First Peter, Peter comes along and he's, he exposes this need for grace. Listen to this. He says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, um, Peter call, uh, tells us that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we need God's grace because we're in darkness without it. We're not even a people without it. We don't belong to anybody without it. We have no hope for mercy without God's love and grace. In chapter 2, verse 25, he says, You were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. So not only were we in darkness, we, we were deviant, we stray. 
without God's grace, we'll wander. And then in chapter 4, 2 and 5, he says that we are saved by grace so as to live for the rest of the time in our bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So what are we without the grace of God? We're people who just live for our own human passions. He says the time is past. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So apart from the grace of Christ, that's us. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You may say, oh, I'm only guilty of two out of those. We're still guilty. And then he says, with respect to this, they, those people who live like that, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Because that used to be the flood of debauchery we were happy to dive into, apart from the grace of God. So apart from God, the reason we need God's grace is because we're in darkness, or, and we're deviant, and we're full of debauchery without him. So the gift of God's grace is indispensable. And when you know that, it changes you. But the gift of God's grace, his favor, is also infinitely costly. Until until I know what it costs for God to shower me with his favor, and until I know that I had no way to earn it, no way to work for it, no way to buy it for myself, I won't know that the love of, I won't really know that it's the love of God that gives me that grace. And I won't, I won't appreciate it, and it won't change me. So Peter explains the cost of grace. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You can't buy this grace. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's priceless. Someone else has to pay for this for us. And in chapter 2, 21 to 24, Peter tells us that it cost Jesus suffering. He says, Christ also suffered for you. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, so he's sinless, and he was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, his father. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. It costs Jesus dearly. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. And then in 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus tells us that it cost the exchange of his righteousness for our unrighteousness He exchanged his sinlessness for our sin. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Until you and I know that it cost Jesus the turning away from his Father's face 
in judgment and displeasure, we will not be changed by the turning of God's face toward us in joy and delight. So here's the question the Spirit had for me this week. Jimmy, is my grace amazing to you anymore? Yeah, you sing it, but is it amazing to you anymore? If I understand my need for the favor of God, for the face of God to shine on me, and if I understand that I can't buy it from Him, I can't earn it from Him, that I need Jesus to pay that infinite cost for it for me, if I understand that, then grace becomes amazing. If I understand that I'm never going to make it through this fog unless He sets His grace before me and lets me see my way. I'll never, never think it's amazing. And so that's why Peter's writing this letter to them, to us. So that we would stand firm in grace. And why did they feel, why did Peter feel like they needed to be urged to stand firm in the real grace of God? Well, as you, as you read the letter, you find that these folks were apparently under attack. Listen to this. In chapter 1, 6, and 7, Peter says that they had been grieved by various trials and tested by fire. In chapter 2, he says uh, that these folks have endured sorrows while suffering unjustly, that they are following in the footsteps of Jesus by suffering for, for doing good. In chapter 3, Peter says that they had been reviled, they'd suffered for righteousness, they'd been slandered, they'd have their good behavior reviled, and they suffered for doing good. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter says that they had suffered in the flesh, they'd suffered in their bodies. In chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, Peter says they're experiencing fiery trials and are being insulted for the name of Christ, and are suffering as Christians. So they, they, needed, they needed to be encouraged to stand firm in the real grace of God. All this attack from the outside, whether it be persecution from people or suffering caused by their circumstances, all of that was, is enough to make any believer lose their footing. So, of course, he's saying, stand firm in this real grace in the midst of your real life. But we may say, hey, persecution from people. We're not, we're not being persecuted from people. Not long after people, uh, Peter wrote this letter, um, Nero would use Christians as torches to light his garden parties. You know, we, that wasn't happening yet to them, but, but there was persecution. We don't experience that. But that day is probably coming. For some, it's already here. I don't know if you've heard about the house churches in China that are being ransacked and people thrown in jail, pastors, wives, elders, members, 
are being thrown in jail. They're cleaning house in China. If you claim to believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope for, cho- uh, for change, true change in this world, and you offer him to others with love and grace, you will suffer verbal and perhaps even violent persecution. Now look, you may not have to die physically for Jesus, but you will have to die socially for him. What about the circumstantial suffering? Maybe, Maybe you're not suffering much in your circumstances right now. My guess is most of you are in one way or the other. Remember Job? Satan asked for permission to go after Job because he assumed that the only reason Job loved and served God was because God had blessed him circumstantially. And so, what is Satan's solution to really proving that Job really didn't love God? He was going to attack him in his circumstances. He took his family, he took his finances, he took his reputation, he destroyed it. He destroyed his physical and relational comfort. Job's external circumstances changed. And we may think, well, I don't, still, I don't experience that kind of persecution, whether from the devil or from other people. I, I, I live in East Tennessee, by the way, where there's a church on every corner and a Jesus fish on every SUV. Or every other SUV. Um, but what about the, the attack from the inside? Peter talks about that too. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That means the passions of your me-first heart, your sinful nature, which wage war against your soul. Do we really believe that there is a war being waged inside us as followers of Jesus? That the passions of our old self, our me-first heart, are waging war against us. Two examples of what that might look like. Someone once said that the gospel is prevalent enough in our culture, and especially here in the Bible Belt, that the gospel is prevalent enough in our culture that it's easy for the gospel to work like an inoculation. An inoculation uh, gives you a little bit of the disease so that you don't get the full thing, so that you don't get the whole disease, right? So in our culture, especially here in the southeast, we've gotten enough of the gospel to inoculate us from getting the whole thing. That's a very subtle, insidious thing that's going on. That's the passions of our flesh waging war against our souls. That's one example. What, what about this one? Um, the devil has permeated our culture with a virus called affluenza. In fact, 
back in Texas where I just came from, there was a kid who got a lesser sentence because his lawyer argued that he was suffering from affluenza. Affluenza. Our, our affluence is slowly killing our hearts and filling our hearts with idols. We're so stuffed with our stuff, our little gods, that we have no hunger for the living God. John Calvin said our hearts are idol-making factories. They're just churning out idols one right after the other. So yes, Peter's right. The passions of our flesh, our me-first hearts, our idol-making hearts are waging war against our souls. And those are just two of the subtle attacks that suburban American Christians face every day. It's an invisible fog that surrounds us all the time. We don't even know we're in a fog. And so why look for the little reflector buttons on the road if you don't know you're in a fog? But this is real life. This is real life. Real life is war. From the outside and from the inside, we're under attack. In fact, the only other time that this phrase, stand firm, is used in the New Testament is used by Paul in Ephesians 6 when he's describing the Christian life as a spiritual warfare. And so that's why Peter, again, at the end of his letter, reminds us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And so Peter wrote this letter to urge us that it's so easy to lose your footing in the gospel and become easy prey to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that we all need to be reminded to stand firm in real grace for real life. So, to close, I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about the man who wrote this letter. What qualified him? I am not qualified to tell you all how to live real grace in your real life. I mean, I'm right, I'm with you in this. I'm learning how to do this with you, which is why, since I get to choose what to preach, I want to preach something that helps me. So, we, together, need to sit under the man who has the authority and the experience by the Holy Spirit to tell us how to do this. And his name is Peter. Um, He has the authority to tell us how to apply real grace to real life because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says. He's an apostle. He, uh, apostle means one who is sent. Peter is qualified to declare that this is the true grace of God and to exhort us to stand firm in it because he was an eyewitness to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Um, he was an eyewitness of the grace of God in Jesus in the flesh. And he received this message of grace straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. Peter was there when Jesus said, in Luke chapter 24, Peter was there when Jesus said, when Jesus did this, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem And Jesus said to Peter and the others, you are witnesses of these things. I'm giving you 
the authority to testify to my grace as witnesses. So he has the authority, but he also has the experience to tell us how to wrestle with real grace in real life because, let's face it, he's Peter. Peter. I think Peter would probably be the most popular person uh, that most of us are going to want to have dinner with when we get to heaven because we can relate to him. He's a real guy. Um, Remember on the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death and the soldiers took him away. Peter, who had sworn to Jesus, I will die with you. Just moments later, denied Jesus, denied that he even knew Jesus three times to a little teenage girl who was asking, aren't you one of them? So he caved, not to soldiers with swords, but to a teenage girl with questions. I get that. I have one. (laughs) But Jesus said to him that night, earlier that night, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know how they sifted wheat to get the, the husks off of wheat? They would put it in this thing and they would shake it violently and then toss it up in the air and let the wind blow the chaff away. That's what Satan wanted to do with Peter, Jesus said. He wants to shake you violently. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, Jesus said. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then after his resurrection, John 21 tells us that uh, Jesus was on the beach. He had served breakfast to the disciples and he looked Peter in the eye three different times and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, of course. Of course, Lord, you know I love you. And three different times Jesus said, feed my lambs. And in doing that, Jesus restored Peter for those three denials. He gave him three opportunities to express his love to Jesus and for Jesus to give him a commission to go and do what he said. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So Peter is one who has experienced the grace of Jesus. Peter knew the love that transforms Traitors into trophies of grace. What do you think was the look on Jesus' face when that third rooster crowed? And remember, it says that Peter looked and Jesus was watching him right after he denied him the third time. Most of the time, I think the look on Jesus' face was the eye roll, the way to go, idiot. But grace is the face that love wears when it meets the undeserving. The look on Jesus' face was the look of the one who said, I have prayed for you. And when you turn again, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. It was a look of grace. That's the look he gives you. 
That's the look he gives you. Peter knows what it's like to lose his way in the fog. Peter knows what it's like to wind up in the ditch or in the neighbor's yard. So we're going to listen to him for a few weeks. We're going to learn from him. How can we keep our eyes focused on those little reflector buttons of God's grace in the midst of the fog of whatever it is that's going on in our lives? Father, would you help us? Would you help us to see and hear from Peter by your Spirit the grace of Jesus? Help us to see the look on Jesus' face That is grace because he loves us. Because he's the one who can transform traitors into trophies of grace. God, would you do that in us in this church? Make us a people who know what it's like to live real life by your real grace. And would you do that even now as we come to feed on your grace in Jesus? And would you set apart this bread and this cup from their normal everyday use so that they might be for us those reflectors in the road that remind us there's grace, there's grace in the fog. Keep going, keep going. Would you let that be uh, what your people experience this morning as they come to this table? In Christ's name I pray, amen.